Nice ride. Thank you, Mocha Coca. Chrysler and Jeep came up on Buku Awards. And Dodge trucks last as long as the Deagle Double Chisel. Plus, I got the hookup, nephew. For sure. You know, I'm not too sure of what you just said. Now everybody gets a great deal. For shizzle, I could zizzle. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And I'm Laura Conaway in New York. Today is Friday, December 12th. It's about 3.21 p.m. on the East Coast. On today's show, we're going to look at the situation facing the big three automakers in Detroit. As you know, the Senate blocked a bailout bill for the industry on Thursday. The companies Ford, Chrysler, and GM say they are too big to fail. We're going to take the long view on that one. And first, for today's Planet Money Indicator, David, I want to look at a set of numbers that we don't usually consider, by which I mean the stock market, and in this case, the Japanese stock market. That's okay. I mean, the, the reason we don't usually look at the, at the stock market is because it's really just measuring what a bunch of people are thinking. Maybe they had a bad day or had a fight with, with their parents. Maybe they're something. scared. They're, they're scared. But sometimes you really wonder, what are they thinking? Take today's indicators, 12. That's how great a percentage Toyota shares fell yesterday, and 15. That's what nearly happened to Honda. And we got a question on Twitter from our friend Jay Rosen at NYU asking us why. Because all this came after the U.S. spiked the rescue plan for the U.S. auto industry, which you might think would be good for Japanese auto companies. You know, the U.S. auto industry is in trouble. That means that's great for them because it would mean fewer competitors. So we went out and we did a little poking around. The first article I saw said the Japanese might be worried that U.S. car makers are going to have to hold basically a fire sale. Oh, so like the U- the idea is the U.S. automakers are in trouble, so they have to sell all their cars for half price or something. And so Toyota doesn't sell any. Right, exactly. Who wants one of the full price ones? And then I talked to Vinny Catalano. We've had him on before. He's the president of an investing firm here in New York. It's called Blue Marble. And Vinny thinks the problem for Japan is a little more complicated. The Japanese economy is still tied very heavily to the export market. Exporting to, guess where? The U.S. So anything that affects the U.S. economy in a negative way, such as the auto bailout not going through, meaning that U.S. consumers might be hit even more, the economy being hit even more dramatically, that that would have that that short-term psychological effect on the Japanese stock market. Is there anything else going on in the Japanese economy that might be making the stock market go down on a particular day? Uh, Yes. The other part that, uh, once again, pertains to their economy and the, the domestic demand side, their spending. People in Japan, the culture is that they just don't spend. They're very frugal. They save tremendously. And because of that, no matter how much the government has been trying over the last decade, they just can't get the Japanese consumer to spend anywhere near the way the U.S. consumer has spent for many, many decades. We don't have to go to that extreme, but something, but they're almost like at the other extreme of, of saving way more than they really need to, and they just don't spend anywhere near as much. Because of that, that domestic demand part, companies uh, within Japan end up becoming much more highly reliant upon exports. And exports, by the way, not just to the U.S., they've also been exporting tremendously to uh, China. So China slows down because of the U.S. slowdown. So everything is all connected, and 
you know, we rise and fall more dramatically than, than we had in the past. Is there anything for you in this idea that the yen is too strong right now and that's going to hurt Japanese exports? Uh, yes. Uh, what it does is it makes Japanese exports more expensive to other markets, and that's the whole currency thing. Whenever your currency is higher, you know, vis-a-vis other currencies, then the goods and services that you're selling to another country uh, that based on a different currency, that it makes those goods and services that much more expensive and less competitive. Thank you, Vinny Catalano. We'll link to your blog on ours, npr.org slash money. We should say that the latest on the auto situation as we are recording this now, close to 3.30 in the afternoon, uh, is that the White House, which uh, in the past has not wanted to use the $700 billion financial bailout money to help the auto industry, now says it might be willing to tap those funds to give emergency loans to the automakers. So this morning in the Planet Money meeting, we have this conference call every day. We were trying to think of some kind of a historical example Something that could, you know, help us sort of get our heads around what can happen when a huge, huge industry goes bust. And, David, as you know, it was the steel industry. That's the first thing that came up. Right, because the steel industry uh, was was just unbelievably huge. So I talked to John Steele Gordon, the business and economic historian and author, and he reminded us that, yes, back in the day, steel might have seemed too big to fail. Well, in the 1950s, the steel industry was a very big deal indeed. Remember that in 1951, Harry Truman seized the steel industry when a strike took place, saying it was vital to the Korean War effort. He got slapped down by the Supreme Court for doing so. Um, But it was a major employer and a major source of union power. And when you think of like skyscrapers, railroads, right, and the war, I mean, it it was one of the things you thought of when you thought of America. Absolutely. I mean, steel from a, um, roughly the, the last third of the 19th century, steel had been the, the measure of a country's economic power. The bigger your steel industry was, the bigger you were. And the United States became the world's largest steel producer in the, in the 1880s. All right. So take us forward a little bit, because um, eventually, like the auto industry, the steel industry ran into trouble, in part because of foreign competition. Yes. Well, basically, in both cases, what happened was that at the end of World War II, the United States was the only major power whose territory had been unaffected by the war. So we had it to ourselves, and, that, and then by the 1960s, Europe and especially Japan had recovered, and they had built brand new steel mills with brand new technology, and they were able to produce steel more cheaply than the United States, and even with the shipping costs, were able to outcompete the American steel companies in their own territory. So it is sort of like uh, the Japanese car manufacturers being leaner and meaner and using uh, you know, newer, more modern techniques, that sort of thing. Exactly the same thing. It, was there also an extent to which the U.S. steel industry had grown sort of too, too big and they had lots of, uh, you know, they had u- the same union problems? Yes. I mean, the, because they had this cartel in which they had this guaranteed market, which effectively meant guaranteed profits, uh, they shared those profits with the um, United Steelworkers. When the U.S. steel industry started to get into trouble, was there talk in Congress about a bailout? Was there talk about we need to do something, the, the steel industry is, is too big to fail, that sort of thing? Uh, not really. Uh, what there was was the, the, the steel companies began to become seriously non-profitable um, in the late 70s. And um, they went to the Carter administration and um, with anti-dumping laws 
which were already in place. Um, and that didn't really work. And what ended up happening was that the um, the United States and Europe began beating up on Japan, um, and Japan cut back its steel exports. In other words, they more or less formed a world car- cartel. Started um, beating up on them how? By you know getting them to not um, export so aggressively. Just ask them. Just hey, could you stop that? Yeah, more or less. And you know, with <laughs> that works. Implied threats. Yeah, the Japanese did cut back on their steel export. So the U.S. government did did try and get involved and, and help out. Not in bailouts. No, it didn't. Um, it didn't write any big fat checks to the steel companies. Right. Okay. So take us now into the dark days. How bad did it get for the U.S. steel industry? What happened to these towns? What happened to the jobs and the workers? Well, I mean, there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of unhappiness, not only in Pittsburgh, but in the Lehigh Valley in eastern Pennsylvania, where um, Bethlehem Steel was, was headquartered. Um, and there was, you know, there was a lot of unemployment, and people had to find, you know, had to be retrained and find new jobs, and they often did not pay nearly as well as the old um, steelworking jobs had. All right, so what happened after that? Well, they, just, they started um, building, you know, tearing down those old technologically obsolete um, integrated mills and building, you know, what are called mini mills. Uh, they're powered by electric power and, and um, rather than coal. And they, um, they use recycled steel rather than, you know, starting with iron ore. And they're, they're much more efficient in terms of, of um, you know, the number of workers needed to produce a ton of steel. How much steel does the U.S. actually make now compared to you know, back in the 50s and such? Well, it's, it's currently it was making about, I believe, in uh, last year made 97 point some odd ton, million tons, um, which is about, I think we were doing like 110 um, million tons in 1970. So we're basically back to where we were. Basically, we're back to where we were. The, we're no, we're, our percentage of, of total steel production in the world is way down. China produces about one-third of the world's steel today. And we have fewer workers because we're doing it more efficiently. Much more efficiently. That was John Steele Gordon, business and economic historian. His latest book is An Empire of Wealth, The Epic History of American Economic Power. And we have one more thing for you today on Planet Money, but we're going to go ahead and sign off now and just go out on it. Right. So it's a great story our colleague Adam did, Adam Davidson, about a year ago. He went to Pittsburgh to try and find out what had become of the steel industry and all the people who had worked for it. And also to find out what the term cake eater meant. Right. Uh, so we'll have that for you in a second. Um, but otherwise, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Laura Conaway. We leave you with Adam standing in what used to be a steel mill. So this is what it's come to. The center of Pittsburgh's steel-making power is now a shopping mall. It drives Jan Doffner crazy. This is the grounds of the Homestead Works. One of the largest mills in the world at one time. What did it look like? I, um, uh, the largest open hearth in the world was located where Dave and Buster's is today. <laughs> okay. so. Jan Doffner gives bus tours with the heritage group Rivers of Steel. Can you hear me now? Today it's an elder hostel tour of an abandoned steel furnace. Did you hear what this bus driver just called me? He called me, he said, my little hunky friend. It's not as rude as it sounds. Hunky refers to a mill hunk, a blue-collar mill worker. There was another side of the tracks, wasn't there, Dexter? Yes, there was. Yes, there was. On the other side of the tracks, there lived the cake eaters. Uh-huh. The cake eaters, of course, were the rich folks, at least rich in the eyes of the mill hunks. Cake eaters were the professionals. 
the engineers, the office workers. Chuck Edwards was a mill hunk. He's now a Rivers of Steel tour guide. He remembers when the plants started closing. It was like uh, going to a funeral every day. You'd come in here and you knew that this was just going to be gone. And you're not going to go up the road to another mill and get a job because they're having their own funeral up there. This is the standard Pittsburgh story. Steel died. In came tourism, hospitals, universities, and lots of malls. But is it right? Is the steel industry dead in Pittsburgh? Not exactly. To see what's become of Pittsburgh steel, you have to drive away from the big steel mills. Sometimes you have to leave the city and go to a nearby suburb like Cranberry Township. I went to Mecco Marking, a steel stamping company run by Dean Friends. This could not look less like something related to the steel industry, huh? By design. By design, yes. It's nice being out here in the fresh air. Very nice being out in the fresh air, and we've got a lot of good restaurants around here. Mecco has a remarkably narrow specialty, marking numbers and letters on pieces of steel. They've been doing it for more than 100 years. They used to do it with hammers back when they were based downtown near the big mills. Now they've gone high-tech. They use lasers to engrave 3D images into steel. Put the mic around the side there, and then... That is so cool. I mean, this is absolutely Star Wars-type stuff. Mecco used to work just for Pittsburgh steel plants, but those are gone. So to stay alive, Mecco had to find customers around the country and the world. And Mecco is just one of hundreds of similar companies. In fact, Pittsburgh is home to fully 25% of America's steel mill suppliers. These are small companies founded by engineers and other experts for hire, or specialty equipment makers, the folks who make testing tools or specialized bricks for steel furnaces. Some are tiny, just two or three staff members. Others, like Mecco, employ closer to 100 people. Altogether, they employ tens of thousands, and they have a big impact on the global steel business. But all these survivors don't make up for what was lost. They employ far fewer than the big mills did, and, for the most part, they employ cake eaters. There are hardly any jobs left for the mill hunks. Now that the plants they worked in are gone, and the city has changed. Carrie Trito studies steel economics. When you're on the river, I was on the river last night rowing, and that U.S. steel building towers over you, and... The change from having that huge U.S. steel building as the symbol of this is what our city is doing to these small organizations scattered around, visually, it's very different. Trito is part of a group of professors at the University of Pittsburgh studying what's become of the steel industry. She says they've learned some valuable lessons, that sometimes an economy's best assets are hidden, that some industries have a second act. And, at least in Pittsburgh, If you want to thrive in the 21st century, it pays to be a cake eater. Adam Davidson, NPR News.